chapters 11 to 13 of book 8 of history of animals by aristotle translated by darcy wentworth thompson this librivox recording is in the public domain 11 of insects such as have teeth are omnivorous such as have a tongue feed on liquids only extracting with that organ juices from all quarters and of these latter some may be called omnivorous inasmuch as they feed on every kind of juice as for instance the common fly others are blood-suckers such as the gadfly and the horse-fly others again live on the juices of fruits and plants the bee is the only insect that invariably eschews whatever is rotten it will touch no article of food unless it have a sweet-tasting juice and it is particularly fond of drinking water if it be found bubbling up clear from a spring underground so much for the food of animals of the leading genera twelve the habits of animals are all connected with either breeding and the rearing of young or with the procuring a due supply of food and these habits are modified so as to suit cold and heat and the variations of the seasons for all animals have an instinctive perception of the changes of temperature and just as men seek shelter in houses in winter or as men of great possessions spend their summer in cool places and their winter in sunny ones so also all animals that can do so shift their habitat at various seasons some creatures can make provision against change without stirring from their ordinary haunts others migrate quitting pontus and the cold countries after the autumnal equinox to avoid the approaching winter and after the spring equinox migrating from warm lands to cool lands to avoid the coming heat in some cases they migrate from places near at hand in others they may be said to come from the ends of the world as in the case of the crane for these birds migrate from the steppes of scythia to the marshlands south of egypt where the nile has its source and it is here by the way that they are said to fight with the pygmies and the story is not fabulous but there is in reality a race of dwarfish men and the horses are little in proportion and the men live in caves underground pelicans also migrate and fly from the strymon to the ister and breed on the banks of this river they depart in flocks and the birds in front wait for those in the rear owing to the fact that when the flock is passing over the intervening mountain range the birds in the rear lose sight of their companions in the van fishes also in a similar manner shift their habitat now out of the yuxin and now into it in winter they move from the outer sea in towards land in quest of heat in summer they shift from shallow waters to the deep sea to escape the heat weakly birds in winter and in frosty weather come down to the plains for warmth and in summer migrate to the hills for coolness the more weakly an animal is the greater hurry will it be in to migrate on account of extremes of temperature either hot or cold thus the mackerel migrates in advance of the tunnies 
and the quail in advance of the cranes. The former migrates in the month of Boidromion, and the latter in the month of Mimacterion. All creatures are fatter in migrating from cold to heat than in migrating from heat to cold. Thus the quail is fatter when he emigrates in autumn than when he arrives in spring. The migration from cold countries is contemporaneous with the close of the hot season. Animals are in better trim for breeding purposes in springtime when they change from hot to cool lands. Of birds, the crane, as has been said, migrates from one end of the world to the other. They fly against the wind. The story about the stone is untrue, to wit that the bird, so the story goes, carries in its inside a stone by way of ballast, and that the stone, when vomited up, is a touchstone for gold. The cushat and the rock-dove migrate, and never winter in our country, as is the case also with the turtle-dove. The common pigeon, however, stays behind. The quail also migrates, only, by the way, a few quails and turtle-doves may stay behind here and there in sunny districts. Cushats and turtle-doves flock together, both when they arrive and when the season for migration comes round again. When quails come to land, if it be fair weather or if a north wind is blowing, they will pair off and manage pretty comfortably. But if a southerly wind prevail, they are greatly distressed, owing to the difficulties in the way of flight, for a southerly wind is wet and violent. For this reason, bird-catchers are never on the alert for these birds during fine weather, but only during the prevalence of southerly winds, when the bird from the violence of the wind is unable to fly. And, by the way, it is owing to the distress occasioned by the bulkiness of its body that the bird always screams while flying, for the labor is severe. When the quails come from abroad, they have no leaders, but when they migrate hence, the glottis flits along with them, as does also the land-rail, and the eared owl, and the corn-crank. The corn-crank calls them in the night, and when the bird-catchers hear the croak of the bird in the night-time, they know that the quails are on the move. The land-rail is like a marsh-bird, and the glottis has a tongue that can project far out of its beak. The eared owl is like an ordinary owl, only that it has feathers about its ears. By some it is called the night-raven. It is a great rogue of a bird, and is a capital mimic. A bird-catcher will dance before it, and, while the bird is mimicking his gestures, the accomplice comes behind and catches it. The common owl is caught by a similar trick. As a general rule, all birds with crooked talons are short-necked, flat-tongued, and disposed to mimicry. The Indian bird, the parrot, which is said to have a man's tongue, answers to this description, and, by the way, after drinking wine, the parrot becomes more saucy than ever. Of birds, the following are migratory, the crane, the swan, the pelican, and the lesser goose. 13. Of fishes, some, as has been observed, migrate from the outer seas in towards shore, and from the shore towards the outer seas, to avoid the extremes of cold and heat. 
fish living near to the shore are better eating than deep-sea fish. The fact is they have more abundant and better feeding, for wherever the sun's heat can reach, vegetation is more abundant, better in quality and more delicate, as is seen in any ordinary garden. Further, the black shore weed grows near to shore. The other shore weed is like wild weed. Besides, the parts of the sea near to shore are subjected to a more equable temperature, and consequently the flesh of shallow water fishes is firm and consistent, whereas the flesh of deep water fishes is flaccid and watery. The following fishes are found near into shore. The cynodon, the black bream, the meru, the gilt hand, the mullet, the red mullet, the wrasse, the weaver, the calionimus, the goby, and rock fishes of all kinds. The following are deep-sea fishes, the trigon, the cartilaginous fishes, the white conger, the seranus, the erythrinus, and the glaucus. The breeze, the sea scorpion, the black conger, the marina, and the piper or sea cuckoo are found alike in shallow and deep waters. These fishes, however, vary for various localities. For instance, the goby and all rock fish are fat off the coast of Crete. Again, the tunny is out of season in summer, when it is being preyed on by its own peculiar louse parasite. But after the rising of Arcturus, when the parasite has left it, it comes into season again. A number of fish also are found in sea estuaries, such as the sap, the gilt hand, the red mullet, and in point of fact the greater part of the gregarious fishes. The bonito also is found in such waters, as, for instance, off the coast of Alopecanesus, and most species of fishes are found in Lake Bistonis. The coli mackerel, as a rule, does not enter the Euxin, but passes the summer in the Propontis, where it spawns, and winters in the Aegean. The tunny proper, the Pelimus, and the Benito penetrate into the Euxin in summer and pass the summer there, as do also the greater part of such fish as swim in shoals with the currents, or congregate in shoals together. And most fish congregate in shoals, and shoal fishes in all cases have leaders. Fish penetrate into the Euxin for two reasons, and firstly for food, for the feeding is more abundant and better in quality owing to the amount of fresh river water that discharges into the sea, and moreover the large fishes of this inland sea are smaller than the large fishes of the outer sea. In point of fact, there is no large fish in the Euxin excepting the dolphin and the porpoise, and the dolphin is a small variety. But as soon as you get into the outer sea, the big fishes are on the big scale. Furthermore, fish penetrate into this sea for the purpose of breeding, for there are recesses there favorable for spawning, and the fresh and exceptionally sweet water has an invigorating effect upon the spawn. After spawning, when the young fishes have attained some size, the parent fish swim out of the Euxin immediately after the rising of the Pleiades. If winter comes in with a southerly wind, they swim out with more or less of deliberation. But if a north wind be blowing,
they swim out with greater rapidity from the fact that the breeze is favourable to their own course. And, by the way, the young fish are caught about this time in the neighbourhood of Byzantium, very small in size, as might have been expected from the shortness of their sojourn in the Yuxin. The shoals in general are visible both as they quit and enter the Yuxin. The trichii, however, only can be caught during their entry, but are never visible during their exit. In point of fact, when a trichia is caught running outwards in the neighbourhood of Byzantium, the fishermen are particularly careful to cleanse their nets, as the circumstance is so singular and exceptional. The way of accounting for this phenomenon is that this fish, and this one only, swims northwards into the Danube, and then, at the point of its bifurcation, swims down southwards into the Adriatic. And, as a proof that this theory is correct, the very opposite phenomenon presents itself in the Adriatic. That is to say, they are not caught in that sea during their entry, but are caught during their exit. Tunnyfish swim into the Yuxin, keeping the shore on their right, and swim out of it with the shore upon their left. It is stated that they do so as being naturally weak-sighted and seeing better with the right eye. During the daytime, shoalfish continue on their way, but during the night they rest and feed. But if there be moonlight, they continue their journey without resting at all. Some people accustomed to sea life assert that shoalfish at the period of the winter solstice never move at all, but keep perfectly still wherever they may happen to have been overtaken by the solstice, and this lasts until the equinox. The colimacrum is caught more frequently on entering than on quitting the yuxin, and in the propontis the fish is at its best before the spawning season. Shoalfish, as a rule, are caught in greater quantities as they leave the Yuxin, and at that season they are in the best condition. At the time of their entrance they are caught in very plump condition close to shore, but those are in comparatively poor condition that are caught farther out to sea. Very often, when the coli mackerel and the mackerel are met by a south wind in their exit, there are better catches to the southward than in the neighbourhood of Byzantium. So much, then, for the phenomenon of migration of fishes. Now, the same phenomenon is observed in fishes as in terrestrial animals in regard to hibernation. In other words, during winter, fishes take to concealing themselves in out-of-the-way places, and quit their places of concealment in the warmer season. But, by the way, animals go into concealment by way of refuge against extreme heat, as well as against extreme cold. Sometimes an entire genus will thus seek concealment. In other cases, some species will do so, and others will not. For instance, the shellfish seek concealment without exception, as is seen in the case of those dwelling in the sea. The purple murex the syrinx and all such like. But though in the case of the detached species the phenomenon is obvious, for they hide themselves as is seen in the scallop, 
or they are provided with an operculum on the free surface, as in the case of land snails. In the case of the non-detached, the concealment is not so clearly observed. They do not go into hiding at one and the same season, but the snails go in winter, the purple murex and the syrinx for about thirty days at the rising of the dog's star, and the scallop at about the same period. But for the most part they go into concealment when the weather is either extremely cold or extremely hot. End of chapter 13